Does it work? Years ago, Glenn Chambers was excited to start his work as a missionary broadcaster in the Amazon basin. And Glenn boarded a plane, and he was in, he, he landed in Quito, Ecuador, and as he was there, he had this urge in his heart to write a letter to his mother. But he didn't have any stationery. And, and the only thing he could do was he looked around and he, he found a magazine, and he looked for a page in the magazine where there was enough white space to be able to actually write out a letter to his mother. He opens up and he finds there's one page that has just one word printed on it. It was a, an advertisement, but this word was big and bold, but all around it was all this white space. And so Glenn tore out that page from the magazine, and he wrote a letter to his mom. He wrote about how he was excited to begin this new adventure, how God had called him, how he was expecting God to work in his heart and his life. But Glenn never made it to the base where he was to begin to work. Flying out of Quito, Ecuador, his plane crashed. After hearing about his death, his mother received a letter in the mail. And there was that piece of paper that Glenn had torn out of a magazine with one word printed on it. And in the middle of his writing, that word spoke out everything that was in the heart of his mom. Because there in the middle of the page was simply the word, why? Why? All of her fears, all of her questions at losing her son were summed up in that one question. Now, this, this banner um, was made for me by my assistant several years ago, and uh, it, it hung in my office for many, many years. And um, it became an incredible tool because so oftentimes when people would come and, and visit with me and have questions, this really was what is at the heart of it. Why? There are so many why questions that we wrestle with. Why am I here? Why do bad things happen seemingly to good people? Why don't I have more understanding? Why is it so difficult? Why is work so challenging? Why are my relationships falling apart? We all wrestle with whys, and especially in times of trial. Oftentimes, the first question that we really have to deal with and wrestle with when difficult times hit is why. Now, the truth is, most of the time, we will not find an answer to that question. Mrs. Chambers didn't find a specific answer to the why. I'm sure over time she could see some of the things that had been accomplished even in the midst of that tragedy, but it didn't really answer why. But I believe that what James is telling us is that when we move beyond why, we can find something far more valuable when we begin to look instead for the answers to why, we begin to ask who? Who is going to be with me in the midst of this trial? 
Who can I turn to? Who can I trust? Who can I rely on completely? And James here in this scripture points us directly to Jesus Christ, who promises to generously give us exactly what we need in the midst of our trials. Last week, we began looking at the book of James, and James starts off with, if we're really honest, what seems to be an absolutely crazy statement. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All right, now, how many of you, if you set aside your conditioned religious response, you hear that, how many of you think, that's nuts? How many of you are lying? Because some of you might be. It sounds crazy to our ears. How can we count it joy? Well, I believe he gives us the answer here in the scripture that can begin to transform how we view the trials and difficulties of our lives. And James, he he starts off not with an answer to why, but Because he's so practical, he starts off with, here's what you're to do in the midst of them. Here are the actions that you're to begin with, and then we're going to begin to help you understand the theology and and the questions behind all that as we begin to do the right things. He takes a slightly different approach than what Paul does. Paul, in in teaching on many of these things, gives us the theological background and then brings it into the commandment. James does, accomplishes exactly the same thing. He just does it the other way around. He wants to tell us what attitude to have and how to face trials. And he gives us, we looked at this last week, three action words in these verses Uh, in the the first few verses, and then in what we're going to look at today, he gives us one more action word in verse 5. But he starts with count. Count, and it means to take an account of. It means to examine and explore and to look at your trials analytically and to see what is God doing in the midst of this and what outlook and attitude should I have in response It means that we're to examine what is most important in life. And it is a call for us to value Christ's character over our own comfort. To value becoming more like Jesus more than I value having things go the way I want them to go. His second word there, action word, is is to know. And it's, it's not just our outlook, it's an understanding in our mind. Recognizing that all of us will face trials, but we don't have to respond to trials in the same way. And it's a call for us to to acknowledge that faith is required in the midst of trials, and that trials themselves are the only way that our faith will grow. Just like our muscles, if they're not tested, they will not get stronger. The same is true with our faith. And then the third word is let. He says that we are to let um, steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's God's goal for your life and for my life, for us to become like Jesus Christ. And he uses our testing to get us there. 
And so that let is, is reflecting a surrendered will, where we choose to obey God's command. But so far, James hasn't dealt with why. He hasn't dealt with the trials. So before we go to asking, which is the fourth word, let's look at the why for just a moment. There is an answer, but the truth is the answer really isn't what we want. When you think about your trials, maybe it's the loss of a loved one, maybe it's dealing with disease, maybe it's the loss of a job. You ask why, and more accurately, we ask, why did this happen to me? If you really had the answer, would it make that much difference? If you were to see all of the causes that led to this effect, how much would it change in your life and my life? Because there is an answer, and it simply is this, is that life in this world has been corrupted by the effects and power of sin. Our world and our very being is in a fallen state. Sin has scarred the environment, our relationships, our bodies. Everything we see is impacted by sin. Now, part of the why is answered in James. I want you to look at verses 13 through 15. Because part of the, the question we sometimes ask, especially in areas where we experience failure, is... Did God cause this? Is it God's fault? Oftentimes, people, when they're wrestling, especially with um, areas of sin in their own life that they're not willing to take ownership of, they'll say, God made me this way. They'll try to blame God for the actions and the choices that they make. But look what it says in James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we need to face the fact that a big part of the why of the trials, of the difficulties, and especially of the failures in our life when it comes to sin is because we ourselves are sinners. And we follow our own desires. And what James is doing here is he's setting in contrast two different things. A desire to do God's will and a desire to do what we want. And ultimately, as we progress in this, when we look and when he begins talking about a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways, it's not a very good translation because there's not, an, there's not an equivalent word in English to what it really says in the Scripture. It really says double-spirited or double-willed. In other words, wanting two things at the same time and unable to choose. What James is saying is the way for us to navigate through trials is ultimately to choose that we want God more, God's will more than what we want. That's what it comes down to. That choice. 
the Bible clearly tells us that God does not tempt us. He did not tempt Adam and Eve. We cannot blame God for sin. The brokenness of our world came through human choice and not through God's. And the reality is, as a result, life here is filled with trials and difficulties. And each one of us are impacted with the truth that life is not fair. Your life isn't fair. My life isn't fair. The life of people around us is not fair because it is broken. And sometimes that brokenness is incredibly intimate and incredibly burdensome. We look at the failures in the scripture and we need to acknowledge that God did not cause Lucifer to rebel. He did not cause Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. He did not cause David to sleep with Bathsheba. He did not cause Cain to kill Abel, the Tower of Babel to be built, or, um, or for the crowd to cry out for Barabbas. He did not coerce the Roman soldiers into killing Jesus. Each one carries the responsibility for their own choices, their own actions. The Bible clearly acknowledges that our lives and our world is broken. But if we want to see how God feels about this, because that's perhaps the most important thing, all we need to do is, if we want to see, God, what do you think about all this brokenness? And, and oftentimes, the question that comes after why is, God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you changing this? If we want to see just how much God cares about the brokenness of our world, all we need to do is look in the scriptures and see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. His friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus, knowing all things, knows that he is going to raise him from the dead, knows that he is going to set things right. But what is his first response well, he begins by comforting Mary and Martha, and then he enters into the struggle, into the trial with the fullness of his being and what I believe may be the most powerful, hopeful verse in all the scriptures simply says, Jesus wept. At the death of his friend, our God felt the full weight of the brokenness of our world He feels the full weight of the trial, of the difficulty that you are going through as well. I believe God weeps over the brokenness. He saw what sin had done. And he experienced it not just intellectually, but with the fullness of human emotion. Because we have a high priest, the scripture says, who understands what we're going through, where we are, what we wrestle with. But he didn't just weep. He also stepped in and went into action. And he rose Lazarus from the dead. But God's desire was not just to fix this one problem. Because you see, when I'm asking why, really what I'm asking is, God, why didn't you fix this problem? that I'm experiencing, this thing that I'm wrestling with. 
Jesus Christ entered the brokenness of our world to deal with the root cause that causes our suffering, our pain, and ultimately death, and that is sin. He stepped in and took action in powerful ways. God hates what sin has done to our world, so much so he was willing to die for it because he loves us so very much. Well, that's part of the why, and it's a thing that we can know with our minds, and it brings some understanding, but we need more if we're to be comforted in the midst of it and if we're to walk through it. So as we move towards what James instructs us to do, let me give you five things to remember in the midst of trials. Just five brief things to write down. Number one, remember that trials are a short-term reality. They are temporary. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice. Again, same kind of attitude as what James has. Choose joy. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that the trials we face, even when they are intense, are temporary. This life is not the end. It is the entrance to eternity. That's helpful when the trial seems incredibly burdensome. For those of you who were on the, our retreat a little over a month ago, um, you got to be blessed by a dear friend of Becky and I's, uh, Larry Lozier and his wife Jan. And right after the trip, Larry, Larry and Jan came and, and taught on our retreat, and then they went to uh, Lesbos to work with refugees in Greece, and then they returned to Colorado, where they're from. And when they returned, um, and actually at the end of the, their time in Greece, Larry began to get very sick. And over the last few weeks, he's, he's dealt with an incredibly high fever every day, and, and nothing seems to have touched him. Well, he contacted us um, the day before yesterday to let us know that what they discovered was he has stage four pancreatic cancer and likely only has a few months to live. That's a trial. That's a weighty reality. And yet their heart and their attitude walking into it reflects where their hope really is, an understanding that the trial is temporary, but life in Christ is everlasting. Secondly, trials can lead us to greater blessings. This is what James wants to tell us down in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God promises to give us good, amazing, wonderful things, to restore what has been broken and give us a life abundant in Him. He understands our trials and He invites us to seek Him and trust Him because He does have something much better for us. Not just in heaven, 
but even here and now, even in the midst of the trials. Thirdly, trials give us the right perspective. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verses 16 and, and 18 give us some understanding of what's, what's the right perspective we're, we're to have in the midst of that. We're to remember that God is at work in the midst of all that we're doing. And you are all incredibly blessed because my sermon is missing four pages. This is awesome. All right, so here's what we're <laughs> going to do. This is, I had a lot of trouble with printers yesterday. So this is great. Okay, good. Forget that. Let's just use this one. All right. Let's, let's go. Uh, so I'm going to skip that because I have no idea where I'm going now. And we're going to look at verse 5. Here's what he tells us to do, what James tells us to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Here's ultimately where James wants to take us. What he's saying is, I want you to get to the point and under, that you understand trials have one very specific purpose in your life and in my life. Trials are designed to bring you to the end of yourself. God does not tempt us. He doesn't put temptation in your life. He doesn't put temptation in my life. But he will use our difficulties, our trials, and even our temptations, the times when we fail in sin, to bring us to one specific point, the very end of ourselves. And it is the most important place you and I can arrive at. Did you realize that between almost at the end of myself and being full of myself is actually a pretty short distance. I've discovered that's a truth in my own life. That I am so full of me that it is me that gets in the way of what God wants to do in me and through me. And God will take our trials and our testing to ultimately bring us to the point where we cry out, God I don't have anything. I don't have any resources. We looked at this briefly last week um, at the, the principle of first use. The first use of the word faith in the Old Testament is the use where Moses is holding up his rod over the children of Israel when they are fighting the people of Amalek. And whenever he lowers his arms, Amalek begins to be victorious. And when he raises his arms, then Israel is victorious. And it comes to the point, and it uses the word faith for the very first time in the scripture. It's translated as the word um, to steady, um, to steady his arms. When Moses comes to the very end of his ability, and God sends in Aaron and her to hold up his arms. That's ultimately what faith is. Faith is fully relying on God and not on ourselves. And I don't know about you, but my automatic response to anything is to rely on my own ability, my own resources. And so the only way to get me past me 
is often trial. Now, here in the Scripture, there's an interesting word. Look at verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, that word lacks, is, it's a good translation, but it doesn't give the fullness of what it means. It really means if any of you are destitute, if any of you are at the end of yourself, then you're at the point when you can ask for wisdom. You can ask, and God will meet you right where you are in the midst of your trials. But you see, to get there, there's a requirement. We have to come to the end of ourselves. That's why James says that your trials can be a joy because what's going to happen is through your trials, when you respond correctly, when you recognize that God is at work, he will bring you to a point where you can have the greatest blessing in all of the world, his presence. Because he's not just saying here, I'm going to give you an understanding to know what to do. That's not what wisdom in the scripture means. Wisdom is not the same as knowledge or intellect. Wisdom is coupled with the presence of God. That's where it comes from. The scripture tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's an awe, a reverence of knowing not only who he is, but that he is right here seeing what is happening and is with you. Wisdom is connected to intimacy with God. And that's why our trials can be an incredible blessing. It's because they can lead to greater intimacy. When I look back at my life, the moments when I have come closest to God have always been in the midst of trial. In the midst of losing a child, in the midst of of the death of my brother or my best friend, in the midst of failure, those have been the moments when I've discovered that God really loves me for me, that he is with me, that he cares for me. You see, coming to the end of ourselves is a wholesome place. It's a good place. It's the place we need to be. Because the problem is, on our own, our own sense of righteousness gets in the way of God's grace. Our own strength gets in the way of His power. Our own resources gets in the way of us by faith trusting that God, who is all-powerful, will step in and do something mighty and miraculous. God wants to do good things in our life. And he will give us the blessing of trials to bring us to the end of ourselves. And so what God invites us to do here in these verses is to come to the end of ourselves and then to ask. And what does he say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach. Now, here's what, here's what I love about that statement, without reproach. God isn't reluctant to give you himself. He's not reluctant to give you the things that you need. He's not 
coming to you and saying, okay, yes, I see now that you've messed everything up on your own, and, um, and you're in the position you're in because of choices you make. There's no reproach here. He's saying, welcome. Welcome to a generous, loving Father who wants to supply all your needs. And the greatest of those needs, the greatest longing of the human heart is intimacy with God. To desire His presence over anything else that we want in life. You see, I don't know about you, but that's where there's a struggle in my own heart. That's where I tend to be double-willed, double-spirited, double-minded. Because I have a plan in it for my life of the things I want to do, of how I think life should be. And as long as I'm pursuing that with my strength, my ability, it's keeping me from the blessing of having intimacy with God. And that's ultimately what he really wants to give us, is a deep, abiding intimacy. This doubting here in the scripture, it's, it's the word picture behind um, John Bunyan's great book, Pilgrim's Progress, in the character of Mr. Facing Both Ways. Because that's what we're like. That's what he's saying. When he says that we're unstable, it's because we can't decide between two choices. It's not a matter of intellectual doubt. That's not what he's talking about here in the scripture. He's, he's not saying... Um, don't doubt because, you know, you may not have all the answers. He's saying you've got to choose where you're going to put the fullness of your trust. Do you want what God's will is or what you want? And you have to make a choice. Doubt means wrestling with those, that you're wrestling with those two choices and you can't decide. We are to choose His will, His character, over our comfort, his presence over our preferences. James goes on in verse 6 to say, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. We can't presume if we don't want what God wants, when what God wants for our life is the very best, why should God give us what we ask for? I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. I don't even know if I could say it again. But if I don't want what God wants, then I'm not wanting what is best. And so it is a blessing if God will use trial to take me beyond the wise and beyond myself to get to the point where, you'll, where I'll simply cry out, God, what do you want? What will please and honor you? And then ask in faith for that. That's what he longs to give to us. At the end of ourselves is where we can encounter the fullness of God with us. We can experience, you can experience Emmanuel. Not just Jesus coming, where we see him at Christmas, God with us in that standpoint, in that story, but Emmanuel of God with you right here, right now. His presence. Because deep within us, 
That is our greatest desire. Augustine put it so well when he says, Thou hast created us for thyself, and we are restless until we find rest fully in thee. The deep desire of every human heart is because we are created in the image of God to experience the awesome majesty of God's presence. The highest accomplishment that we can ever attain is not being successful in ministry, is not having a wonderful family. All those are good and great blessings that, the God, ha- that God has for us. But the greatest pursuit of your soul and my soul is intimacy with God personally. That's what he wants for And that's why our loving Father is willing to discipline us to give us that which is incredibly, incredibly good. And we can experience His presence everywhere when we allow Him to bring us to the end of ourselves and then cry out and say, God, you can have it all. Everything that I am, everything that I've done, everything that I will ever be, I lay it down. And in its place, I want one thing, you. Give me the wisdom to see you in the midst of the trials. Give me understanding to know how to respond, but more than anything, give me your presence. There's an old, old poem. It says this. It's written by Oliver Holden. It's entitled, God is Present Everywhere. They who seek the throne of grace find that throne in every place. If we live a life of prayer, God is present everywhere. In our sickness and in our health, in our want or in our wealth. If we look to God in prayer, God is present everywhere. When our earthly comforts fail, when woes of life prevail, tis the time for earnest prayer, for God is present everywhere. I believe the message of James that he's talking about here in these trials is to bring us to the point where we can receive the greatest of all God's gifts, intimacy with him. But we have to choose it. We have to pursue it. Let me give you just some priorities to close with for growing in maturity in Christ because that's what the book of James is all about. It's not being content with being childish, with being an immature believer, but moving on. And so let me give you some priorities that maybe will be helpful to some of you. Number one, choose Christ's message before media each and every morning. It simply means this. Oftentimes, our lives are so driven in response to things that are happening around us. Um, We get constant flow of phone calls and texts and emails. Choose to put Christ's message as the very first thing you focus in on each day. Instead of picking up your phone to see what emails, what things you have to deal with in the day, turn to his word. Spend some time intimately with God, saying, God, more than anything this day, I want to be with you, and I want to know that you are with me. Seek his face before you look at Facebook. It's a good plan. 
desire intimacy before your email. There's going to be lots of really cheesy ones like that, but just hang with me. Desire his presence more than your preferences. It means to give him first place in your life. And that's a choice you can make every single morning. The truth is, there is no SMS you could receive that is more important than the message God has for you today. So make him the priority. That's the first step of wisdom, is recognizing that he is our resource for everything, for life and godliness. Secondly, make a choice to obey the Spirit promptly. The truth is, the most miserable people on the earth may be disobedient Christians. To know what God wants us to do and to not do it leaves us frazzled and double-minded and insecure. But when we choose to obey what God tells us to do, there is freedom, there is joy, there is incredible, incredible expectation of what God is going to do. The great key to spiritual maturity ultimately is obedience. And so what we want to do is when God prompts us in our spirit or through his word about a step of obedience, let us become doers of the word and not hearers only. That's what we're going to look at next week. And then finally, make a decision to fully rely on God's strength rather than your own ability. Fully rely on God's strength and not your own ability. When we make those priorities in our life, God can take even our trials and use them as pathways to intimacy. 